This is episode 19 with Kevin Cherko. Uh, Kevin is a fantastic producer, engineer, and a great musician as well. Uh, Canadian boy and now living in Las Vegas and has a wonderful studio called The Hideout. And he's been producing uh, some fantastic acts and he's a uh, really great engineer and all around fine guy. I really enjoyed sitting down for a couple of hours and chatting about how Kevin got to where he is now. I hope you enjoy our conversation. It goes like this. Okay, we're here with Kevin Cherko. Nice to have you here. Nice to be here. This is a nice little, this is probably the nicest uh, room that I've had to record a podcast in yet. Wow, thanks. Beautiful studio here. Yeah. We're at the uh, hideout in Las Vegas. And uh, we were chatting. I got the tour. It's a fantastic uh, place. Thanks. Uh, yeah. I'm sure you're pretty happy every day you walk in here. It's a dream come true. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I, I couldn't have planned it better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you think? I mean, I could have planned it better. You could always plan it better. But uh, but really, I mean, this is like my dream studio. It's like at this point, this is my end game. I, I need nothing better. So yeah. now I can move on to other things. and and redefine what, what those things are. But definitely as far as a working environment, I got my whole family around me. I got state-of-the-art studio with old classic vintage things too. I mean, it's it's really the best life that with that myself could have. Yeah. You know, with all the things that I do and all the things I like doing, it really is, is a, a you know wonderful place to, to be at, you know. One of the cool things that I've noticed right away is that you're surrounded by your family here, which is really cool. Yeah, I mean, I got two kids. One of them, Chloe, runs my studio, and by that I mean like she she works hard because uh, I I do nothing. I try to do as little of that sort of thing as I can. Yeah, I just want to make music, and then uh, Kane is my musical partner. And even though we don't always work on the same projects now, um, he is here every day. You know, he comes and checks in with me every day. I mean, yeah. I don't think many people have a life where they see their kids every single day. Yeah. And, you know, and then he goes back to his own room and does his thing and, you know, we'll see it's at other side on breaks and that sort of thing. And, and some, we have a project coming up, we're both working on it. So those are always fun. So when he was growing up, obviously, um, was it something that you tried to get him involved with and, and, you know, here, this is how this is done and at a very early age, or is it yeah. something that he was just wanted to be around all the time no it's the opposite of that yeah. i tried to not get him involved oh yeah <laughs> at a very early age i mean i still try to you know throw him the obligatory piano piano lessons and stuff like that and with my dad yeah uh but didn't enforce it in fact to a fault i thought you know i mean my, my idea might have been to have him work a little bit harder yeah uh, but my wife's idea wasn't she didn't think that he needed that kind of pressure on him and so you know, and then as I was getting older, I realized, oh, this is so tough. I mean, the music industry, there's a lot better industries to be involved in yeah. than this one, as far as financial return, as far as security, as far as longevity, pretty much anything other than having fun. I yeah. mean, anything else other than having fun is pretty, pretty sad. So I really didn't want him to be really doing this. So I, not only did I not help him, I almost tried to, to prevent him in certain ways. Yeah. And then once he got to a certain age and just started doing it on his own with or without me, you know, I noticed that. And, and at a certain time I said, okay, he's obviously doing this. So yeah. now I'll throw him a bone and got him 
you know, bought him a new guitar, a new computer, whatever he needed at the time, but little baby steps, like see what you can do with this. Yeah. And then if he did something with that, then I'd, you know, give him another key to the kingdom. And, and then eventually I was in a great position because my career started taking off. So then I could really help him out. But by that time he was, he was already proven to me that he truly wanted to do it and just wasn't doing it because it was easy. Yeah. You know, cause he wakes up and there's a Pro Tools ray at home. Yeah. Cause, cause there was no Pro Tools ray at home. I didn't really have any gear, gear till I was quite a bit older. Yeah. So I didn't really have a home studio. Uh, I didn't really have a lot of those things. Uh, but he still, but you know, regardless of that, he grew up in the midst of it all, no matter what I was doing, coming to the studio where I worked, watching the band that I was playing in, whatever it was, he was really immersed in music his entire, entire life. I know when I was young, uh, with the family back in the day when we were making albums when I was seven or eight years old and we go into the studio and I, I knew right away I wanted to be involved in it somehow. And I just remember just looking and watching the engineer constantly, you know, first thing I knew was where the talk back button was or, <laughs> or, you know, just knew how to figure those things. I it's just one of those things you, I just knew at that age that, yeah, I really wanted to do this. Right. And yeah, uh, I think, you just know, right? It's either a part of you or it's not a part of you. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, my, my earliest sort of recording memory was convincing my brother Corey to go halfers with me on a four track, one of those Tascam two, 244s. Yeah. But while I was waiting to do that, I kept hearing about 24 track recording. I was trying to figure out what that actually meant. <laughs> and I remember thinking... 24 tracks, what does that mean? And, and reading about it and then in my mind trying to visualize the piece of tape and cut it into 24 sections. It took me a really long time actually just to figure out how that worked and how you could record on the same piece of tape but not rec record over it. And yeah. and as, as simple as that sounds now, I remember just that function alone. I remember lying awake at night going, how does that work? So there must be, is that what a head is then? Is so there's a head's broken up into, you know, just not knowing it wasn't like it is now where almost anything you want yeah you can dig up on the nets on the internets and googles and yeah because you could you'd ever want to want to know you hear about it and you now you just google it and there's all the information and youtube videos and everything you'd want to know about that particular piece of equipment or whatever technology and back when we grew up you'd busy basically just by chance if you had to see one it would be like wow yeah, yeah. Oh, was, I mean, you had to pay the price, too. You had yeah. to pay studio time in order to go into the studio to find that gear that, that yeah. everybody can have at home now. Um, and you only had, like, Mix Magazine, yeah. maybe a Canadian Musician, Electronic Magazine, Keyboard Magazine, a couple of things like that that you just had to wait for once a month you would get and you would digest and read it cover to cover. Yeah. And that was how you learned. And if you were lucky, you could work at a studio or you were in a band that went into a studio, which was my my case. And then I could ask that guy questions and try yeah. to learn until I became the ultimate thorn in those guys' sides. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll go on record saying that if I ever produced a band that had early version of Kevin in it, yeah. I would probably hate that, that guy and hate that band. Yeah because I was just so into it and I was one of those guys that was, was relentless and just, you know, wouldn't accept no or um, wanted to do it myself, thought yeah. I could do it better, you know? And so, you know, that's a difficult place for me as producer guy now yeah. to, to be in, but. Uh, so let's go back. You, uh, I interviewed your, your brother, Corey, and we talked about uh, uh, growing up in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so when when you, drums were, was obviously your instrument, uh, 
from the beginning. So wh- when did you start playing drums? How old were you? Well, piano was my instrument from the beginning. Was it? So okay. I think when I was four, my dad started me in piano lessons, you know, yeah. classical Royal Conservatory style lessons. And all of us did, Corey, Corey too. Yeah. And then uh, basically drums came about as I was around eight or nine, I think. Um, I can't remember exactly how I ended up doing that, to be honest with you, other than I was being enrolled in Lions Band, which is like a marching band kind yeah. of kind of thing. And I had to choose an instrument. So it's like piano was first, and then everybody had to choose a second one. My daughter chose flute. Corey chose the, the, uh, Corey chose the, the guitar at a later date. And it, when it came my time to, to choose a second one, for some reason I was in Lions Band, and I looked around and said, what would I want to play? And the yeah. only thing that was really that interesting were drums. And originally they said I couldn't do that because everybody wanted to do that. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, they had some kind of little kind of an audition thing to see if you were suitable for it. And I guess I passed because eventually I was a drummer. Yeah. And then it worked out well in our family band too, you know, because then, you know, my dad had a drummer in the band, you know, in the family. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it was just, a, you know, just like any kid, you kind of get thrown into it and start doing it for me it was perfect as Corey as he's a, a guitar player yeah you know worked well for us too because we could complement each other on that and my sister played piano so you know we had a whole little trio yeah had it covered so do you remember your your first drum kit oh yeah yeah max win <laughs> <laughs> which was made by pearl they made clear to say that they, that it was made by pearl but it was a max win set much like a baxter at that time yeah uh it was an orange sparkle kit I mean, I'd love to have that kit now. I have no no idea where it is. I mean, it probably sounds horrible. But. Well, maybe you'll find it. You know what? The cool thing was I uh, interviewed Shane Hendrickson just uh, a couple of weeks ago. We talked about his very first bass guitar. And I asked, you know, he didn't have any longer. And then the next day after I released a podcast, there's a guy in Regina has his bass guitar and contacted him. He wow. listened to the podcast and he's going to get it back. Wow. Isn't that oh, cool? That's that's really cool. Yeah. Somehow I have a feeling I won't be as lucky as that. <laughs> but if not. anybody out there in Regina Ramustra has my old orange sparkle Maxwin drum kit, please send it home. It's funny how something like that at the time seems very it's not important, right? It's just like, yeah. oh, it's, that's that cheap kit and you don't care anymore. And then you get to a certain age, it's like, yeah, that I'd love to have that back again. And yeah. You don't think of keeping it. Well, you know, on the other hand, it's one thing to have a guitar. It's another thing to have a five-piece drum kit, you know, taking yeah. up your storage space. But, I mean, for me, it's a little better because I have storage room here at the at the, the studio. So it would definitely go into a, you know, position of of uh, importance to me and completely unimportant to everybody else. Kevin's yeah. first drum kit and everybody else, <laughs> nobody else would care. Except you need a room F for that. <laughs> <laughs> I can build it. Yeah. So obviously you toured uh, uh, through your teens with the family band and, and performed mm-hmm. uh, all over the place. And I know when we talked with Corey, there was a definite time where you guys decided just to um, move on from that and move to Vancouver. And uh, what was that, that move like for you? Uh, the move was um, memorable on many levels. Obviously, we were sort of leaving our family band at the time, or rather we gave the option to our sister Kim to come out and she didn't want to live out there. Yeah. And, um, you know, we were young guys that just wanted to make our own way. So it was kind of uh, exciting. 
in the sense that it was all going to be new mm-hmm. and we were ready for it. You know, we were pretty seasoned even by, by that time we had already had a gig booked and planned. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we had a game plan going out there and then right away, uh, got involved with another, another guy as a, as a, uh, backup band. And, uh, it really turned into some really great times of learning and growing. And honestly, for me, um, I became a much better drummer by going out there and playing with the different people I played for. Cause it's one thing to just be in your own little insular world yeah. and think that you're great. But it's another thing when you start playing with people who don't think you're great, who uh, don't care if you think you're great yeah. and have different requirements than what your own band had. And so I had to learn how to listen to other people and how to uh, satisfy them and just have a different perspective towards music. Yeah. Um, so it, it was a pretty great time musically, uh, and, and educationally, but a bad time, you know, financially, because, you know, I was probably in a little worse position than the other guys in the band, in which case I had a family. So I had to make a little bit more money. I had to pay other bills besides just mine. Um, so, you know, it was like the, the best and the worst of all worlds, because I was living in a beautiful city with work that I mostly liked. Uh, but yet I had no money to go ski if I wanted to go ski. I had no, no money to, you know, do a lot of the things that people go to Vancouver to do. It's like I could see it. Yeah. I couldn't do it unless we were, got a gig there on the, you know, out at Whistler or something. And then we got a, a pass thrown in or something. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, 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 was, it was good and bad at the same time. You know, good for my son because Kane first started going to school out there. Yeah. My daughter was born out there. So, I mean, a lot of great memories. I know we talked earlier about you getting your first uh, four track. Um, was that your first kind of jump into recording? No, yeah. no. The first one was, um, I wish I could remember the gentleman's name or even the studio name. I can't remember it, but it was an eight track reel to reel studio in Moosja. Yeah. And a guy there had a basement studio, an eight channel uh, deck. And um, Corey and I went in there, we bought some studio time. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we went in there and you know did our thing for the first time and it was pretty uh pretty new and you know we were as green as green could possibly be but uh, i think we spent a day or two days or something and then the guy mixed it and again i wish i could remember his name i can't my dad would probably know um and you know i still got i still got that demo i Do mean you? to be honest with you somewhere yeah i mean i have a little or a couple of big sort of uh plastic containers of memorabilia yeah. that at one point I'll check out. Um, I, I, I'm pretty sure I have a version of that somewhere. Yeah. And I think someone might have digitized it for me at some point too. I mean, I, I'm not really a good collector and I don't do photos, a lot of photos and that sort of thing. So I'm not really great at that. But lucky for me, some other people around me have kind of collected stuff. And so eventually they gave it to me and I put it into my box. Yeah. Uh, but the most, the two most important things were happened on that sort of experience. One was, um, you know, I got to record myself for the first time in Corey and it was like a production. It was like we did overdubs and, yeah. you know, the vocals separate from the band. And uh, so that was really exciting. So that gave me my first taste. That was sort of, yeah, I've been chasing that dragon ever since. Yeah. And, but the second thing that happened was interesting. I played, I remember playing the song. I mean, I thought it was awesome, right? You're 12 years old or whatever it is thinking, this is going to change the world of rock as we, we know it. Yeah. 
And I remember my friend, I do remember his name, Ken Davidson, who I played it for him. And he said, and he was into bands like Judas Priest and that sort of thing at that time. He says, why does it sound like you're sitting down? I thought, wow. Why does it sound like I'm sitting? I was sitting down. Yeah. And um, so that was kind of my first producer. Not that I was producer, like my brother and I both did it, but it was my first sort of feedback of someone who knows nothing about nothing as far as music goes. Yeah giving me an honest reply, an honest report. And I thought, you know what? He's kind of right. It does sound like that. So that's when I real that's, you know, when I realized, okay, recording the studio is not just playing live. We're not yeah. playing for people. There's no energy. You have to create it. You have to make it. You have to be thinking a lot more than just executing a part. Yeah. So, I mean, those two things are pretty important if I think about it. That's an interesting comment. It is. Because you think about it it's now. Brilliant. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Ken Davidson. <laughs> <laughs> well, even now, everyone, you know, still in most cases, you sit down and, yeah. and play, yeah. And nowhere else do you do that. I mean, yeah. you're, either you're sitting down in the studio or you're on stage, and unless you're on the drums or yeah. keyboard player or something, you're you're standing up and yeah. you play way differently. Yeah. Well, and maybe as a drummer, I didn't think about it at that time because yeah, I was always sitting, sitting down. Sitting yeah. down. Yeah. But you know, but the the other side of that is that you get better at your trade. Like even now, I mean, I'm never standing up. Even when I'm singing, I'm not even standing up, which is probably the worst thing I could I could, I could do now. But yeah. I'm just too too lazy. But the thing is that you do, as a professional, you do learn how to channel that energy. Yeah. I guess to make it seem like you're standing up. And most of my guitar players, I mean, I mean, occasionally a guy wants to get up and actually, you know, move move. But most of the guys are sitting down. But the the difference is, is that they can channel how it feels when they're standing up into their music, and they can get that energy excitement into it once you're good. And, and you can do it for a lot longer of time because you're not standing up. Yeah. And so, um, and anybody that works with me knows that it can sometimes be a long, a long day. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I better, I better sit down. You better sit down. <laughs> but, you know, but the key thing about that is it doesn't even matter if you're sitting, standing, lying down. The, what the key thing is, is what you're representing on, on tape or yeah. on, on hard drive now. Yeah. 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 It's the end product. It's yeah. how well, how does it there, make it you feel? Does it make yeah. you feel like standing up? You yeah. Know? I mean, th those are the most important things that producers should ask themselves, not is that vocal in tune or is, you know, you know, it really, it's about one thing for regular people who aren't musicians and aren't technical people. It's, do they want to play it again? Does it make them feel some kind of an emotion? And even if yeah. it's a bad emotion, it's probably still a good thing. Yeah. You know, a lot of my bands are, you know, succeed on anger. Yeah. <laughs> So, so if they're, you know, if they make people angry, that's, you know, mission accomplished. Yeah, that's the deal. <laughs> so uh, let's jump back to Vancouver. You were uh, playing with the Underground Outlaws. Now, interesting story. I heard you were doing, you had a country side to you, but you also had the other version of the band, which is a rock side, right? Is that how yeah. it worked? Yeah, yeah. That, that was our first error. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean the things I don't I know now, uh, but yeah, I mean the thing is we we really came from a musical point of view at that time, mm -hmm. and um, so yeah, I mean we all loved rock and grew up on it and thrived on it. I mean all of us, Mike, Corey, and Shane, and I all, but we, um, you know, we you know, and particularly me, I could make a little bit more more money playing country in a club than I could rock. Yeah. Um, 
And so really what we wanted to succeed as a rock band, but we knew, you know, we could afford more studio time, more gear, whatever, if we played country. And even though we still liked it, and even though we were part of it and had done it all our lives, maybe it wasn't as passionate about it because we were younger. Yeah. Uh, Although, you know, I mean, that's not technically true because we all became great country musicians in a certain sense that you can't do without loving what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, we weren't just putting in time, you know, we were learning it and we were, you know, listening to it too. But I mean, we're 20, you know, one years old, we're much more into Van Halen than we probably were into Ricky Skaggs at that time. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we, we had two bands and we thought that was a cool thing. And we thought that people would respond to that, the same exact guys with different clothes, different band name. And, and really it took twice the amount of work and, and it took twice the amount of, of money in a sense. But um, again, we were thinking from our hearts and weren't necessarily thinking from our minds, even though at that time, all the, let's say that the educated A&R people and the industry, let's call it, couldn't get their head head around that. Well, who are you then? Are you that or are you this? Exactly. And these are the same things I would ask an artist I'm working with now. Yeah. So now I get to experience it from another point of view, but we were all that. And the reality was, is that that truly was us. Yeah. And it, it wasn't, you know, maybe we didn't succeed for different reasons, but we were being true to ourselves at least. And I think that was a good thing. And probably now, if you look back as a producer and engineer, it's probably a great knowledge to have both sides of the fence knowing, because there's things that country guys do that rock guys never do. And there's things rock guys do that country guys don't do at all. But as an approach, as a producer, and even in your years now, yeah, I know you just did a country project, is that um, you know, still know it really well, you understand it. And I think there's there's parts that cross over, there may be something um, in your producing wise that you'd probably pull in from your country roots that probably other guys wouldn't have that in their wheelhouse, yeah. right? Oh yeah, I mean, uh, that, that life, the country life, the family band life and even the underground outlaws that was so invaluable to what even what i'm doing now even the way i arrange vocals i yeah. mean rock wasn't really arranging vocals at that time in that sense like yeah. country did just picking out harmonies and being able to kind of orchestrate that i've really used that in this age and not just that musically too and my you know it was funny the other uh, so about a year ago or so, I, I was writing a song with my son and I had this intro riff, guitar riff, and he just says, looks at me and goes, that's kind of a country riff. You should just turn that into a country song, Dad. As though I did, and that became one of the songs that that we did on Corey Marks's album, is that it came from that and not from me wanting, saying, now I gotta write a country song. That's just who I am, too. Yeah. And so um, it's surprising when it comes out and even a lot of my, my heavy bands will always... Uh, comment on the countryness of it oh yeah even though people outside of that would never consider that no uh they know yeah and uh to the point where one of the first rock guys i worked with said i don't want my vocals to sound like alabama <laughs> <laughs> but again you know again that was very uh, you know i remembered that so even now i think about that that and that guy's name is carson cole mm-hmm. from Al- alberta and he was one of the first guys that we sort of backed up as a as a band and, uh, you know, that made a lot of sense and it still makes sense now. And I'm always careful now when I'm arranging harmonies not to make it sound like Alabama when I'm working with yeah. a metal band or a rock rock band. And there are distinct differences between that. And, and, you know, I can sort of 
uh, change that just based on all the education I've had of doing doing it both both ways. So when you started uh, doing lots of recording and that with the underground outlaws, now Shane mentioned to to me in the podcast that you guys would go into a studio there in Vancouver uh, and just that uh, continuously work uh, all the time. Is that sort of where you just kind of started jumping in as an as an engineer, or uh, was it a little bit before that? Well, I, sh- I should have uh, listened to Shane's podcast before just to make sure I, I was on the same page. But yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you as I remember it. Sure. Um, and, of course, some stuff before Shane Shane was there. But, yeah, when we were in Vancouver, it was like a nonstop, you know, recording machine, whether it was at home with our A-track or whether, you know, eventually we didn't win a Band Wars or we won a Band Wars, too. And so some you know, studio there was giving us some free time. Yeah. But it was like midnight on kind of thing. So yeah. it was like we had to work all night. Uh, we'd play in a bar till two and then go to the studio immediately and just, you know, keep on working until like 9 a.m. or something until the next shift came in. So, yeah, there we, we just had to take advantage of the things that we could. Um, but really the engineering started, again, from when I bought that first four track and realized, okay, wait a minute, I can record on these three tracks and bounce that down onto this track and then I can yeah. do these two tracks. And, um, you know... Even though I was doing it as a musician and doing it because I just wanted to hear my songs, I learned how to engineer at that point. And then we got a four track, or from the four track, we got an eight track. So it was just a sort of a natural evolution, and it became a thing where we couldn't afford studio time. We couldn't afford to to go pay somebody premium rate, but we could kind of do it at home half-assed. And eventually that became better than anything we could do in a studio, at least uh, at that time, just because we could spend more time on it rather than trying to go to a student rush and you're paying X amount of dollars per hour, we could just spend as much time as we wanted to. So, you know, I was learning how to engineer at that time. And, but then when we got to Vancouver, we were able to work with some better engineers and stuff and just sort of absorb a whole different world. Like at one point we were working the midnight hour at Little Mountain Sound, which was, you know, where Metallica, Bon Jovi, Aerosmith, I mean, you name them from that era, and they yeah. they recorded there. And even though I wasn't working with a lot of those people, I wasn't working with Bob Rock. I wasn't working with 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 all those guys, you know. Uh, but we had worked next door in the studio. Like there was a couple rooms, and then after the other guys went home, I'd sneak over there and look at where they set how they set up their mics, look at oh, yeah. where their gear was, the tracks on the console, all those kinds of things. So you know, I still consider myself from that world from that lineage, even though really, I mean, Bob Rock probably doesn't even know, you know, who I am, but I still consider from the Bruce Fairburn, Bob Rock, Mike Fraser, uh, Randy Staub, that whole sort yeah. of West Coast uh, lineage. I mean, I, I think I'm a derivative of that. Yeah. And because even though if I wasn't directly working with them, I was listening to what they were doing. And those were the favorite records of mine at that time. And I was able to actually get in the room and watch and see how they did it all. And you know, another cool thing was that uh, Mike Plotnikoff, uh, who was an engineer there at that that time, uh, he was our engineer for a couple projects. But he or one of the other systems they gave us, we ended up fall, falling asleep in the middle of the night because it was like 5 a.m. And who's yeah. working at that time? And so I would uh, go into the tape tape locker, the tape vault, and all those bands' records were there oh, yeah. on tape. So I'd take the ACDC you know, reel down or the Aerosmith one or whatever I could find. Yeah. And I would go and, you know, um, put it, put it on the machine. And I'd listen to those raw tracks just to see how they record them, just to see how good the punchings were, just to see, yeah. you know, what it really sounded like before it got to be mixed. So, um, you know, 
those are the things that I would probably kick someone out of my studio for doing now if they went into my drive locker and got an old drive out. But those are the things that we do at the time. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Can you think about it now? If someone did that yeah. here, you'd be like, you'd want to kick some mass. Well, but. just think about it. I could have accidentally recorded over that. And although they yeah. were probably just backups, I'm yeah. sure the label had their own version. The band probably had a version. I don't even know how it worked in those days. But I could have accidentally recorded over that. I mean, at that time, we weren't thinking about samples. So I wasn't thinking about getting the snare sample or anything like that. Like yeah. now, if someone opens my session... You know, a lot of the keys, keys to the kingdom are there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we don't allow that here. No. But just the same, if I showed up here as an intern, I'd probably still still do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, though. I mean, that would have been so interesting to sit and go through those oh. uh, those reels and listen to everything separated out and being able to, you know, jump in the, the room where everyone's gone and look at mic placement and look what they've done on the console and... Um, I mean, that's really cool learning. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it was amazing. It would have been even more amazing to be in those sessions. Yeah. But but again, Mike Plotnikoff, who was working with us, he was the assistant to a lot of those sessions. So, so he would, you know, he'd tell us his stories. And, and also at that time, that high-end gear, seeing an 1176 for the first time or an LA2 or, <clears throat> or that sort of generation of equipment, that was the first time I had seen that or yeah. worked with that. So it changed the way as an engineer I worked too, because of course, when you're working with a cheaper compressor, especially in those days, it definitely doesn't react the same way as the high-end gear did then. Now you can have some pretty great gear pretty afford affordably yeah but in those days it was either lousy or awesome and there wasn't a lot of yeah there was in no between. in between was there no yeah um so when that kind of finished up uh with the underground outlaws uh where did you find yourself at that point well technically i don't know what the other guys said but the underground outlaws never really finished up. Yeah. So I, you know, basically we didn't want to play cover gigs anymore because we thought we couldn't be taken seriously as an original band if we're just going around playing, you know, other people's music. And we just didn't find that fun. Yeah. And we were able to do other things. I was able to start getting some studio work and Corey was doing his thing and Shane was doing his. So uh, I... I can't say I decided to move back to Saskatchewan, but my wife decided to move back. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess I'm coming along. <laughs> so it was kind of like, I'm going back, you can come or not. And I said, okay, I'm coming. Um, but that was pretty instrumental in my career too. So basically, technically the underground outlaws were still going, but we only had to get together to create music and to tour as the underground outlaws, not as the underground outlaws playing the hits of Garth, Garth Brooks. Yeah. So I moved back to Saskatchewan and lived in Moosha or Regina for a bunch of years. And but the good news about that, uh, besides keeping my family all in one place, yeah. was um, that I worked at a, a couple of studios there, and you know, I was able to work at both. Uh, Talking Dog Studios, another studio called Touch Touchwood, which was where I did most of my musical things. But it was great because the owner Grant Hall uh, was a, was a, a gear fiend, and so he tried to get one of everything he could, which let me introduce me to a lot of gear I wouldn't normally get at a small town studio. Yeah. Plus, he gave me a lot of time to experiment. It kind of like he gave me the keys to the studio and said, do your thing, make some money. If you're making money, pay me. But, you know, I mean, he'll, he'd he be the first one to tell you that story that, you know, because Grant had a day day job 
too. So he would leave for work at 9 a.m. I'd be working on the snare sound. He'd come back at five. I'd still be working on the same snare, snare sound. <laughs> <laughs> so it was great to have that uh, flexibility of time and not be on the clock all the time. And yeah. then so when he had projects for me from everything from a polka band to a rock band, you know, I would work those hours for him and, you know, he'd be making money from that. But he also allowed me to go in on the downtime and just learn and just kind of experiment and create my own projects and, you know, do my own things, which I don't think I would have had that same uh, flexibility if I was in Vancouver or if I was in, in Toronto or somewhere like that. Yeah, because like he'd that. just be turning out projects and you wouldn't, yeah. and you had, like you mentioned earlier, it's just times, you know, you it's everything. You just need to get the project done lots of times. And, yeah. Um, and there'd be five other guys wanting that time, the downtime too, that yeah. might be more qualified, might be further along than me. But at Grant's place there, I was, you know, other than him, to my memory, I remember being the top dog. It was almost just kind of like me and him. A couple other guys floated in, in and out. Yeah. But it really, you know, the studio's not being used. I'm in there. Yeah. So, uh, so, so that was, that, that was pretty uh, important, I think, to my overall, to my career of being able to make a drum kit in 50 different ways till I find out the, the way that I like versus just seeing what other people did the previous session using that or whatever the person is at that studio, you know, and I encourage my guys here now to do their own thing and try their own ways too. Yeah. And it's, I think, cause I remember back when I was starting uh, recording and I would spend just, it would just be me lots of times and there's nothing going on and I was lucky enough to have a nice little home studio and I'd spend hours yeah know, just hours and hours doing you know just trying things I mean you don't even eat no you just you don't even think about anything it's like a you know I always say I didn't age from the time I, from the time I was about 12 to about 35 because I just stayed in the studio the entire time it's like yeah. It, time kind of slowed down and kind of stopped at it in a different way uh, because you were so into what you were you were doing you know yeah and it takes a certain person certain personality to want to do that not everyone would want to sit all night long and, and work on a snare sound <laughs> I mean, most people go mental <laughs> and they're usually a lot smarter than me too so, yeah yeah i remember back in the days when i you know spent a long time doing not that i don't spend a long time doing mixes now but um you would spend extra time trying new things and trying new verbs or trying new whatever you wanted to do. And uh, I always remember having clients, they'd want to sit in on the mix. And I'd be like, no, you probably don't want to do that. And I would purposely, the first hour, just sit there with a kick and snare. And just, even though I might've had it, (laughs) I would have spent extra time just so they would go crazy and then they'd be all of a sudden yeah we're gonna we're gonna leave you yeah <laughs> and come back and say thank you very much oh i know that drill yeah yeah same here <laughs> even something like comping vocals you know if the singer wants to stay while i i comp you know i'll make it painful for that first line as painful as it possibly can so they leave and they yeah. do every single time nobody wants to hear all the bad takes of themselves singing no so they'll leave immediately and they'll call them when they when i'm done and it's it's a lot better life <laughs> yeah, no, I feel the same way. That's the big one, comping vocals that have the singer there. It's just that 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 sends you down the rabbit hole real quick. And yeah, nothing gets done because they're listening to the wrong things. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, obviously, you're spending a bunch of time in Regina and uh, Saskatchewan recording in a studio. Um, so, what was the next step after that point? Uh, okay, so. Um, 
after that, you know, my brother got his big gig. Yeah. Um, and so um, basically working for his boss was kind of the next thing that I did. So, um, so tell that story. How did that all come about? I mean, you'd have to get it more exact from Corey, but what I understand happened was, so remember when Corey got the fiddle playing job with Sh- Shania, I also auditioned for the drumming gig. Oh yeah. And I didn't get the drumming gig. Yeah. And I was pretty crushed at that time, but I, you know, of course you look back on life and it all made sense. I mean, I was destined to be more studio guy, which is what I wanted to do any, anyways. Yeah. I mean, I always, always wanted to do that more than anything else. So, you know, but I'm sitting now, I'm sitting in Regina while my brother's traveling the world. Yeah. Uh, but as it turns out, Mutt was living in Switzerland and, you know, Mutt, Mutt Lang, the producer on, on those albums, was living in Switzerland and he wasn't happy with one of the guys that he had as a programmer slash engineer. Yeah. And they remembered, or so Corey and Sh- Sh- Shania were sitting uh, down at lunch one time. This, this is the way I've, I've heard it. And she said, Mutt's looking for a new guy. Doesn't your brother do that? Uh, and because on my resume to be a drummer, I had all my studio experience. Yeah, yeah. Like I thought that would really sell me as a, as a, <laughs> as a drummer. Uh, and Corey said, yeah. And she said, well, give me his number so um, I can pass it on. And Corey said, oh, cool. So she did. And then Corey immediately sends me a note saying, hey, probably nothing's going to come of, come of this, but just in case, yeah. be ready for it. And sure enough, I mean, eventually Mutt called and we had a chat on the phone for about an hour at 4 a.m. I think my son answered. And uh, I was in bed, but like a lot of people, uh, um, that can't understand uh, time codes, yeah, <laughs> or not time, time codes, zones, ti- yeah, time time zones. That uh, you know, Mutt calls me at four a.m. and I pick up and we had a good little chat. And then he didn't call me again. And then uh, a couple weeks later, I was doing a drum session. He called me in the middle middle of it, and uh, of course, I took that call. So was that was that first conversation like? What was the conversation about? Um, the first conversation was I think especially knowing what I know now is just him just getting to know me as a personality and just yeah. uh, what I thought. I mean, it wasn't really an interview, a work interview as much as just a conversation. Yeah. What are you doing? Him. What are you working on? What kind of music you like? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, honestly, I can't remember it yeah. that much. He would, he might actually have a better recollection than me, although I'm sure it was a lot more eventful for me than him. Yeah. Uh, but I can't remember other than just shivering basically naked in my living room talking to him <laughs> at 4 a.m. on like on October day mm-hmm. night um, and me just trying not to embarrass myself in any way and yeah. trying to act like I knew what I, I, I was doing and that I was the right guy. Yeah. Um, you know, I was a big fan of his whole entire history. He was my number one favorite, favorite producer. So it's like I knew what he needed. I knew, let me think, I mean, I knew his his background and yeah. I and I knew a little bit of what he'd be looking for in a guy too so I just tried to represent that as good as I could yeah hoping he'd call me back it worked it did it yeah. worked and he called me back and then he asked talked to me for a little bit again and then asked me if I would wanted to come to Switzerland for a just you know for a face to face and yeah. so I you know let me said let me check my schedule and mm-hmm. counted to five and said oh yeah sure it looks looks good <laughs> <laughs> Like I'm not going to go and like, I'm yeah. not going to blow everything else. I, every other job I have in order to take that shot. Yeah. So, uh, so then I went there 
to Switzerland, and lucky for me, the minute I showed up, they were having a technical problem. Oh, yeah. And it was a time code problem of syncing up the uh, um, the Pro Tools rig mm-hmm. uh, to the 3348 dash, which is a Sony digital machine that used tape. Yeah. And so uh, Mutt, at that point, liked to record vocals on tape still. He did everything else on computers, but re- liked to record the vocals on tape because he could work it himself and he had a system down. And so he just wasn't completely convinced it was always truly in sync. Yeah. And so lucky for me, because I had done, again, some video work and some movie work and TV show work and had a lot of time to kill, you know, where I was working before, I understood all that. And so I very quickly fixed this problem and proved it to him that it was completely in sync. And at that point, he kind of sent the other guy home because he had only introduced me as his friend, his Canadian friend who's coming to visit. Oh, yeah. I don't think he wanted to let out of the bag yet that yeah. the other guy was going to be let let go. Um, so he sent the other guy home, and then I worked the controls at that point. I basically engineered and programmed for him, and it was just some keyboard stuff we were we were doing. So I was basically just moving MIDI notes around for him. Yeah. And every now and then, I had to remind myself to to breathe. Because it was literally like I'd be running out of breath trying to do a good job. He'd be sitting behind me. I'd be at the controls and change that one to this and that one with this and you know do this. Da da da. And he'd sing a line and I'd try to do it right. And uh, and all of a sudden it's like <gasps> I got to breathe, you know, because I'm just so intent on doing a good job. I was yeah. so nervous. So um, that's kind of what it started. But then he sent sent me home. You know, so I was there for a couple of days. He said the next. I was already scheduled to leave the next morning and you know we'd be working from 10 a.m. till till 4 a.m. it was it was like trial by fire although that was just the way that he worked period um but at 4 a.m. you know or whenever you know he quit for the night been a little bit early like at midnight or something and he said okay well i'll see you tomorrow so i'm leaving tomorrow i said yeah yeah i'll be up at 6 a.m. to say bye because i had to you know catch a train and i said okay great 6 a.m. comes. He's not there to greet me, not there to say goodbye. And, you know, I thought, oh, geez, I blew it. Yeah. But, you know, I I went home. I still felt good. Like, I did as good a job as I could. It wasn't like it went bad and I embarrassed myself or, or anything. But I, I went home and eventually called me again and said, sorry, I wasn't up there, you know, to, to say goodbye to you. But, you know, I had fun with you, blah, blah, blah. And I'll, I still want to give my guy, you know, a, a few chances. So we'll see how it goes. And and I'll let you know. Yeah. And then probably about a month after that, then he called and said, do you want to come work for real? I go, yeah. So that would have been, even though, you know, a chance of a lifetime there, it probably still, that's a big, big move, big change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like it happened all at once in the sense that my whole family didn't move there. It was, it was very much, uh, and he, he, he wanted to kind of expand. He was way behind and he thought if he got a couple good qualified guys there that he could work faster. Yeah. So both my brother and I, uh, so he scheduled Corey and I had to go there and kind of help him out. And at that point I was more studio guy, Corey was more guitar player guy. So I had to get him caught up on the, on the technology side of it. Yeah. So he came to Regina for I, I don't know how many weeks, and, and we had about a month to when Mutt wanted us to move there. Yeah. Or not move there, but go there Let's to go there, work. Yeah. And so I just, you know, I gave Corey a crash course, and and he helped me out with certain things, and then we were ready to go. And I, I, I could be wrong, but I still think it was like January 7th, still to me seems like the Sorry. date yeah. of the, when, when we got there. And then we stayed there for about 30 days, I think. Non-stop, 
10 a.m. till 4 a.m. every every day. Um, so and, what were you working on of that? Was that Shania's uh, uh, project or was another project? N- no, the first thing I did was a Britney Spears song. Yeah. So that was the job where he had let the other guy go, and so he's behind on that. And so yeah. basically... Um, Basically, we started on that project. Yeah. Corey simultaneously was doing a Christmas record with him that I'm not sure that I ever saw the light of day, but he was just starting it. So he'd he'd kind of sit with Corey in one room for a little while and get Corey going, and he'd come with me on the Britney thing, and we'd he'd just keep working with with me on that. Yeah. So that that was the first project that I had worked on with him, which was pretty fun. So that's it's actually a, a project where you weren't stealing a. A reel from the room. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah. no, I wasn't. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it was it was legitimate work from start until go. Someone, but you know, the, the reason why I'm stalling is because uh, you know someone tried to steal that from me at a later point in time. But that's a whole other story. Oh, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, probably like you mentioned, long days. Um, exceptionally long yeah. days like nobody has worked but I was already working those because I'd be working like nine until six at the music studio and then I'd be working the film studio from seven till midnight oh, yeah. kind of thing just to you know to pay the to pay the mortgage and so you're used know. to those hours yeah for for me it wasn't very tough yeah. you know for other people you know it was a little tougher for Corey I think you know but uh but it doesn't take a person long to kind of have their body clock adjust yeah you know and the thing is when you want to do it as bad as we wanted to do it I mean, I just didn't think about it. Yeah. I mean, I was drained. I mean, I thought, wow, I've been here for 28 days in Switzerland and I haven't even left this building. Yeah. Because our accommodations were in the studio too. Yeah. And there's a, it's a big compound. So it's like, we're not driving the studio. We're not, you know, occasionally we go for lunch somewhere and, and you know, Mutt was always very gracious and always took us out everywhere like to eat. Yeah. You know, oh, but sometimes, a lot of times, yeah, the food brought brought in but um you know i realized i haven't even seen the lake and i'm i can i can see it when i go out of the studio but like i haven't been there so one time at lunch i just walked Corey and i just walked all the way down the path and 50 minutes we were there and just walked back and that was my big swiss kind of experience for that first month yeah um so it was heavy heavy days just like anything, you know, you, you have to prove yourself. And I, I always thought that was maybe his way of testing me just to see if I could kind of cope. Yeah, I think you learn, you know, like anything, uh, especially in the studio, when you surround yourself with people who are more experienced or better than you, it may really makes you a better person. I mean, you rise to the occasion. You hopefully rise you, to the occasion. You right? rise or you yeah. don't. Yeah. You know, you sink or you swim. Yeah. And I, I mean, I remember, remember at that time we'd be working and I'd have to go to the bathroom. That was almost my only kind of break. Yeah. Because it's also, it's not like we were taking breaks. Yeah. Other than TV breaks if you found a good show on. But uh, I would, when I went to the to the bathroom, I would take a manual. Oh, yeah. Because there's so many synthesizers I was never used, so much stuff I needed to learn at that point. I mean, he had one of everything and stayed the art of everything. So I was trying to get really caught up. So it's like I didn't, my bathroom break wasn't even a break. It was like, yeah. what can I randomly learn in the two to five minutes <laughs> I'm sitting there? 
<laughs> and then if I found something interesting, I bookmark the page and I get to it later on or something. Yeah. But then by the end of the night, you're so drained that all you can do is go to sleep in order to wake up again. Oh, you'd be just mentally drained. Yeah. Crazy, you know? Oh, yeah. It was a total mental drain. But, you know, in a sense, it was almost like an army mentality. I, I always kind of thought, too, that... that you know, he, he he probably didn't really, this wasn't an intentional thing that he did, but I always yeah. thought that was his way of breaking me down and building me back up. It's like, you know, take away sleep, you know, sleep deprivation. Yeah. And um, completely, I mean, I hadn't, I wanted to learn as much as I could. So it was like, I was there to learn. Yeah. So, uh, and you combine that with sleep deprivation and anything I was learning was my new truth at that yeah. point. It wasn't up for debate until later on in life after I left probably for a decade and go, maybe that's not the best way of doing things. But generally it was. Yeah. You know, I did learn a lot and, and I did really respect him and still still do. What do you think you learned was the biggest thing you learned in that first full month of working there? I would say the biggest thing I learned is I was surprised at how, how hard he worked mm-hmm. because he's Mutt Lang. By that time he had already probably, his projects had already probably sold 300 million units at that time or something. So he doesn't have to do that anymore. Yeah. And he's still doing it. Yeah. And so that combined with, I thought there would be more uh, distinct keys to that kingdom mm-hmm. because all this stuff felt so good. Like when you listen to, right from back in black, you know, on, everything that he does feels incredibly good like just the vibe of it the groove of it it's always it's always flawless yeah so i thought he might have a formula like always lay the snare drum back 10 milliseconds at so and so tempo or like i thought it would be more scientific than it was and it was really just the same way as anybody does it other than he had more stamina so it's like you just keep going till you get it right yeah till it sounds right and you keep trying things and you keep you know so it would be the simplest of bass lines that i I would be programming with with him and it would be just be like the acdc style of bass do 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 that eighth note kind of thing with four chords it's not rocket rocket science he's done it a million times at that point in time in life and it would still we still sit there all day and move notes around and push some and delay some and until we were out of time and then we wake up the next day and start start over again because that didn't feel right the next day when we got in. Yeah. So I I wasn't really ex- expecting sort of at that point in time he's still trying. It's still just a matter of trying, 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 trying. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And then moving moving on. So. In those moments where you're making those subtle changes and obviously someone of his caliber's got in-depth hearing and, and has this vision and, and whatever. So do you feel at that point you were you were hearing those changes and they were all making sense to you or uh, when you finally got there, you were like, wow, that was, yeah, that now that makes sense or, or is it just you were just working and getting it done or? I would be lying to you if I could hear lots of things that he heard. Yeah. I was trying to learn that. Why did he, in fact, you know, I mean, I was no different then than I was when I was 21 or that I am now. It's like, I'm thinking in my mind, this is getting worse, not better. Or I don't know where he's going here. This isn't right. Yeah. Um, But in the end, it always was right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would even doubt sometimes if, in a sense, if he could hear the rhythmical things that we were doing, cause we'd so subtly changed notes and tested him a couple of times and he passed every time. I mean, yeah, his, he, he, he was just on a different plane, you know, as far as musically, as far as rhythmically, you know, because he had, 
put so many years into doing that. Most of us don't put that much time. And even as yeah. drummers, you know, I don't think drummers always understand. Some do, but not not every drummer always understands how exact or how playing behind the beat, playing in front, all those kind of sort of simple issues are actually quite a bit different than what they would actually think of it. Yeah. Um, so it was wonderful to have that time with him to kind of experiment with all these things and really kind of organize it in my mind to the point where I had to test MIDI, realizing that the problem was that the MIDI was shifting and then swaying around. Exactly. And then I had to figure out that MIDI was serial, meaning that if I programmed four, four notes in a chord, they're not all playing at the same time. Yeah. They're actually playing slightly one after each other. Yeah. And in a random order, it seems to, I mean, I don't want to get into the technical side here because I'm, I'm, it's not, not what this is about, but um, I can't remember what the question was about other than, uh, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't hear what he heard. No, I yeah. couldn't. And, and I would keep trying and keep trying. And I would, in fact, I sometimes I just don't hear what you're telling me. I, I don't hear why that's wrong. Yeah. And he would just keep saying it's wrong, it's wrong. And so I'd have to figure it out or he'd tell me, he'd usually know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was just a whole different higher level than before or since, you know. And people can't necessarily take that kind of time any anymore to make records. And and many times it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, particularly in country, it's just about a global feel, about a general feel of a band playing. It's not about everything being gone over with a fine tooth comb. And, yeah. and I think that that's okay and that's cool. I mean, some of the music I like the most sounds out of time and out of tune, but yeah. it's hitting me in the right way. Yeah, and yeah. that's another skill to learn too, is when is that hitting you? When is that that mayhem a good thing and not a bad thing? Yeah. And it's easy for someone to point to a song and say, that's so out of tune and out of time, and that works, so I can play out of tune and out of time now too. Well, no, you can't. That worked because it worked. Yeah. And that's a random working almost. And that's the thing that I fought, fought against my whole life is I like to understand. I like to compartmentalize. I like to, I like to figure out why it's working and why it doesn't work. And with Mutt's kind of production, you can kind of figure figure that out eventually. And with mine too. But with, you know, it's more mysterious to me when something like a Steve Earle track is so out of tune, but I love it still as much as I do. Yeah. Why does that work that way? I mean, I can't always figure out that. That's more mysterious to me than knowing when something is purely in tune or out of tune, in time, out of time. Let's shift that back a little bit. That sounds better. I mean, I can do all that. I think it's sometimes diff more difficult to randomly know when something's right because then you know and again and that that's different kind of, of of producer because you're you can only judge by your own judgment uh by what you feel yeah and you may feel something completely different i mean many times with every band i work with i'm i'm kind of thinking differently than than they are but eventually i can prove them <laughs> why right. i'm right yeah but if you can't prove you're right that it's just completely a matter of opinion and everybody yeah. hears music a different way and that's what makes it great just like any art if it's painting or whatever i mean everybody's going to look at something or listen to some something a different way and if you're lucky you have the ear that mainstream or at least you can understand what the majority of regular people listen to and how they listen to it and that's what makes you valuable to bands and artists and record companies is because your judgment is one that will resonate with a lot of people yeah versus just getting into a room with a bunch of drummers and go that's the best drumming track or get into a room with a bunch of guitar players and that guy played that steely damn soul better than anybody else ever ever did yeah i'm i'm you know that's not being valuable to a band as far as i'm concerned being you know because i want my bands to have careers and lengthy careers and have lives and you can't always have a life in music if you're just doing what you want to want to do 
you know, if you're not, or rather, you can do what you want to do, but as long as you're resonating with enough people who appreciate it. Yeah, because I think a lot of artists, a lot of musicians worry too much about what the other musicians are going to think about what they're doing instead of worrying about what the audience who's going to buy the project will think of it. Well, and that is that, you know, you asked me what I learned from Mutt. That was the number one thing I learned from him, too, was that, you know, he didn't consider himself, let's call it part of the cool, cool kids club. Yeah. And he never wanted to be in the cool kids club. He wanted to sell records. He wanted his music to reach as many people as it could. And that doesn't mean being extra cool with your vintage reverb or your, you know, vintage guitar that nobody else likes the sound of. I mean, it's, it's a whole different thought process. Um, but just the same, I still admire the other guys that just want to do what they want to do for the sake of art. Yeah. Because that's that's really cool. Yeah, just go push those boundaries too, because that there's a need for that too, because that will influence more commercial music at some point too. Yeah. So I don't look at it as anything as being better, good, less good, or not. I just enjoy making commercial music so I can fix my car when I need to, yeah. and I can have a pool in my back backyard. But uh, but I don't I don't look at it as being more valuable or important than some guy sitting in his room pushing the boundaries of how fast he can play one string. Yeah, you know, in a solo. I mean, that's still really cool to me as a musician too, and as an executionist, it's still really interesting. But it's no more interesting to me in a sense than finding a good song that 300 million people stream and go, why did they like that song? I mean. You know, that, and in a sense, that's more meaningful. I mean, I think that music is, can be meaningful in people's lives more so. And a lot of it is related to a lyric or related to that feeling that they get. Mm-hmm. But that, you know, I, I guess maybe the way to quantify it is that if 10 people are touched by a song or a thousand people are touched by a song, that doesn't mean that song is either song is better or worse, but I'd rather be touching a thousand people than the 10. Yeah. You know, because I think that's just more meaningful for me as a person. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, so, now that everybody's fallen asleep. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was great. I loved it. Um, so moving on, you, you finished those 30 days. Um, you went, did you go back home after that? Um, yeah. You were- yeah. So basically the way that it worked in those days is that, um, we would go there for around a month and then yeah. we'd go home for, he flies home for a week and then we'd go back for a month and flies home for a week and right. back and forth until finally about six months went by. And then he was, he realized he couldn't work double duties. He's, he, you know, even like myself too, I'm the same way now. He couldn't have his mind in two different rooms. Yeah. So he decided that he just wanted one guy. And of course I was a lot further ahead, uh, engineer wise and, you know, um, and programming than, than Corey was. So, uh, so he just said, look, I want you to come here full time. I'll move your family here. Just tell me, tell me what you need. So I went home and talked to Kemne and, and we decided that we'd go and we go live in Switzerland. <laughs> Why not? It's yeah. kind of like Moose Jaw. Yeah. It's very similar. Yeah. That, that was really exciting. Mm-hmm. You know, an exciting time for the family too. So, yeah. Obviously, that probably wasn't that difficult of a decision to some degree. It's an exciting new place to go to, and yeah, um, family was all on board, and away you went. Yeah, they had no idea what was coming. Yeah, but it sounded fun at the at the time, and and it was. I don't think any of us would look back at that time as being anything other than an awesome time. Yeah, but a lot of learning too, because you're in foreign country, foreign language. Yeah, you know, everything's different. 
you know, from a gas station pump to whatever. I mean, you're constantly learning and your mind's constantly moving, as particularly for the kids, because all of a sudden they're going to school in a foreign language yeah. too. So, Yeah, that, that would be a big shock for everybody. Yeah. yeah. Well, I dropped Chloe. She's, I think, in third grade at the time. I dropped her off at French school, basically literally just dropped her off. Mm-hmm. And luckily her teacher was English too, so yeah. he could kind of communicate, but probably only for the first week. And after that, everything's in French. And wow. she's on the playground with kids in French. And, you know, there was very, there was some English speaking kids, yeah, but very little. So it's like, yeah, it's basically the same thing, trial by fire, sink or swim. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So how long did you uh, spend there in Switzerland then? Well, my total time there was, I guess, a little over three years something like that if I'm adding in my head right even though I still worked for him a little bit after that because after that I, we moved to LA yeah. and uh, but then I still went back and forth doing some work for him, some, some projects for him uh, and different things uh, so yeah so I kind of I, I kind of worked for him from day one probably about four four years I think which yeah. seems honestly like 40 yeah but uh, but that was four years of college yeah, that that's it's how that's college it. you can go to. Four years of college and you have credits at the end, and and you have yeah. have a bit of cash too. So it worked out good. You don't owe money. Yeah. <laughs> so what what main projects are we working on over those four years? We did a bunch of Sh- Shania things, including the album Up and the Greatest Hits, and then we did uh, a few songs by the band the the Chorus. Oh yeah, love that that group. Yeah, I loved working with them too. Uh, we did a Britney Spears track, did the Celine Dion track, some Brian Adams movie stuff. Uh, Michael Bolton came to sing a track. Oh yeah. That was fun. Good. Um, I guess those were the things off the top of my head that I did with him as well as we did some DVDs and different things like that, which was actually quite a lot of work. Yeah. You know, cause you're trying to make that sound as good as you possibly can. So um, were you getting more into engineering at that point too, or, um, you know what? I I was a pretty solid engineer before I kind of went there yeah. working for him. So I would say I, I the skills I was acquiring were probably more related to programming. Yeah. Meaning synths and anything digital. And as well as uh, obviously a big education on musical arrangement and writing, even though that wasn't what I was serving him for. I, yeah. I was just an engineer and programmer. Yeah. But the things that I was really learning the most were the things that are almost impossible to teach unless you go through a process like that, yeah. you know, with him where I could just see from one minute to the next, I remember thinking this is the best track I could ever do. And then him taking out my favorite parts going, why is he taking those parts? That's the best part of this whole song. That guitar tone is the best guitar tone we've ever got. And then realizing it later when the vocal fits in there and they get slotted in, okay, I get it now. So, you know, it, you know, you would ask me, did I, could I understand it? And the answer is no. Uh, going back to that question, I think the best way I can put it is if any, anybody's ever seen seen that Kung Fu series mm-hmm. where David Carradine is Quan Chain Kane, which is also where my son Kane got his name from. Oh, cool. It was kind of that grasshopper moment where, you know, where you think back and you go, oh, yeah, I understand why the master said that at that point in time. I didn't understand it then, but I understand it 10 years later, yeah. right? So, um, and so by doing all those projects, you know, I got to kind of witness the master at work and just, you know, he really is one, so. Yeah. So moved on to right. LA was your next stop. So I was able to get a company to sponsor me into America so I could come here legally. Yeah. 
Uh, and so we stayed in Vancouver just for three months while I was waiting for my visas and everything to go through. Yep. And eventually got through. And um, I went to L.A. And I at that time they had Pro Tools operator agents. Oh, let's, wow. let's call them. Yep. Because it was still new enough there on a bigger level that if you had any skills, someone would hire the Pro Tools guy. Yeah. So that was the easiest thing for me to kind of get into, and even and with my credits, they figure if I worked for Mud, I'd probably be pretty pretty good. Yeah. Uh, so nobody was hiring me as really. I mean, I got a couple engineering gigs, and but immediately no, I wasn't a producer. I had no credits. Um, so and it was just an easy thing for me to kind of be to be in the end kind of the fix it mix it guy. Yeah. The company that sponsored me is a company called Audio One. Um, who David Frangioni and his wife Jenny owned that company at that time. And uh, as part of my deal, he would sp- his company was big enough to sponsor me into the country, but I would I had to produce some music for his wife. Oh, okay. Because uh, she was a, a singer. So, yeah. so Jenna Dre was her name. And so for me, it was the best of everything because not only did I get into the country legally, but I also had a job, another job on top of it all, yeah. too. So, uh, so it became a great sort of partnership for a while. I did, and I think I agreed to seven songs with her, and in the end, we did like a whole pile of songs over time. Yeah. And um, and as well as that led to uh, another great moment in my life too, where um, Audio One built studios too. So they built Ozzy's studio mm-hmm. in LA. And this is really when my life changed from an engineer to producer in a certain sense is that um, they built Ozzy's studio. Ozzy didn't like the drum room, or I shouldn't say he didn't like it. He thought it was pretty small to be a big sounding room, how the drum's gonna sound big. Cause it was in his house, so yeah. they, they didn't really have, have a lot of space. So David knew I was a drummer and he trusted me and he said, can you come over here and um, just record some drums for Ozzy so he can hear the, hear the room. There's a Yamaha custom kit here. Just, you know, come over, set it up, mic it up, and he's gonna come down and listen. And I remember thinking that I almost didn't do it. I think I was watching Curb Your Enthusiasm or something at the time. And um, and because a lot of these things just end up being a whole lot of work. Yeah. And there's no guarantee Oz is going to come down. And even yeah. after that, if I'm the guy that set up the drums, is there any guarantee he's going to want to work with me? He's going to go to his guys that are much bigger than me. And so maybe I was already a little bitter about it all. And um and curb your enthusiasm is really good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, and I think there's a couple things where he called me one time and then I got canceled. I, I, I can't remember it all exactly other than I remember thinking, oh, I guess I'll just go do it. So I went there to do it and sure enough, I put a whole lot of work into it and his assistant had told me, um, Ozzy really likes the, uh, the in, it, in the air tonight drum. So yeah. with big gated room verb and all that yep. kind of stuff so I kind of made it sound like that as best as I could with double headed toms and not single yep. single headed toms and then they called Ozzy down and he only probably came down for 10 minutes very limited chit chat uh, listened to what I'd done uh, thought it was good and then he left and it was as simple as that and then I backed up and left <laughs> <laughs> so it was gonna for me it was probably turning into what I thought it would turn into which, yeah. which was just a favor for a friend but I got to meet Ozzy so that was cool because I was always a huge fan yeah. um, but what was better than that is I had to interface with all his support people and yeah. his assistant and different people around the house there so we had chatted the whole day so they liked me 
and we got, we we got on really good. So uh, they they remembered me more than Ozzy did. I don't think if he saw me the next day, if he would re- remember who I was. Yeah. But they they liked me enough to uh, when the studio was finished being built, uh, they called me to to be the manager of his studio. Yeah. And um, I said like. You mean because he was going to have different producers coming in and out and he needed a guy, a technical guy to be around all the time to make sure everything worked. Yeah. I said, so you mean like a general assistant patching other engineers, patch cables and sending gear back to be fixed and cleaning up after everybody's gone? And they said, yeah. I said, no, (laughs) I'm not interested in that uh, because that I want to make records. Yeah. I'm here to make records. I can do that anywhere. Uh, So... um, Thanks for calling, um, but I'm going to have to turn that down. Uh, but if you're ever interested in me helping make a record, give me a call. Yeah. Um, and so, um, and I should say before they offered me the manager job, actually, if I remember, I did go in there to do a couple of sort of general assisting type things for someone who was working with Kelly Osborne and his, and um, her sister and so I, I've been around there a couple more times so they kind of got to know me more which is why they offered me the yeah. sort of the manager job but I said you know what I just want to make records I don't want to be the backroom technical support guy so call me if you ever need anything and I thought they'd never call me ever again because usually if you turn people down on a job they just never call yeah um, but sure enough uh, when, once Ozzy and Zach started recording there um, they realized that um they could make a record at his own studio. And so at that time, they had the manager who took the job, basically instead of me, who happened to be a good friend of mine that worked for Audio One too. So yeah. he's the main guy. But you know, even he would say he didn't have the skills that I had. And so what had happened was he had to take a week off to go back to Florida to do some job, and they needed a guy to fill fill in. And they called me. Oh, yeah. So I'm filling in and uh, for a week, and it was awesome. And it was me working with Ozzy and Zach for real for the first time was very exciting. I kept thinking, wait a minute, I'm going to walk down there. One day they're going to realize they're Ozzy and Zach and I'm just Kevin Churko. Who, who the hell am I? But they never sent, sent me home. Uh, so after that week, I went back to life and my, my, my buddy, Zach Fagan, came back to kind of continue on. And then they yeah. decided that they wanted to make, make a record there and just thought maybe I could assist in other ways than what Zach could. So then, um, and you know, Zach and I are still really good friends. Yeah. I feel bad telling this story cause he's such a brilliant guy, yeah. but, uh, but it just ended up that I got the call to go back there as an engineer only. Yeah. And so I, I was there probably for, you know, a good long time after that, just recording Zach and the guys playing and Ozzy singing and that turned into producing it and writing with them. And that kind of is really the monumental sort of period or the t- thing. I mean, Mutt was awesome for the knowledge yeah. and for the skills, but that actually put me on the map for other people to be hiring me as producer or mixer or engineer. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, it's definitely that, you know, you have to make that change too. And uh, the, the irony of the whole thing, and for people listening who are aspiring to do what I do, just consider that probably nobody else in LA would be hiring me to do that. And it took the top metal guy to hire me, which is totally unreal that I would be given that shot when, you know, probably lots of lower level bands and A&R people would never have even given me a shot or a chance. Yeah. So just because you don't get a chance at a low level doesn't mean you don't get the big call. Yeah. 
you know and i always used to joke with kemne is that you know my phone would ring when it when it came to vegas and you know i was a, a lot of the times i needed work so it's like is this going to be the big call it never was the big call but yeah. that call can technically technically come at any any time i mean i've had that call 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 a couple of times now so yeah and a lot of it you know it's like anything it's time and place and and you know relations um you know it all well, you know, you know what? I, I think that's the other thing that I'd like to reiterate as much as I could is that the relationship thing is exceptionally important. Um, and mostly I've been good at that with the, yeah. with, with a few exceptions. But um, but it's like I told you about Grant Hall owning that studio where he used to work at. Well, now he also has a room here, my studio here now. So after all these years, it's come full circle where, you know, he's got a bunch of gear in a room and, and we kind of pool our gear and he books it for a couple of days each month and comes in. And so he's still a part of my life after all these years. And so uh, and that's been really awesome for for us both. Uh, but also the whole um Ozzy and Zach thing. I mean, that came about because of my relationship with Audio One, with the company who sponsored me. Because yeah. again, I was a, basically a decent dude and and did what I said I'd do. And 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 that relationship still. Even Zach Fagan, the assistant, or not the assistant, but the engineer, I told you that I re, kind of kind of replaced. He eventually wired the studio I built here in town. Yeah. So like that relationship could have gone horrible. Yeah. Where he was bitter at me, or you know, you know, I I might have handled it the wrong way. But instead, we became better friends, and I, I eventually was able to employ him. And I tried to employ him at my studio here, too. It just it really didn't work, work out the way that we had both planned as far as time, time, timeline yeah. went. So, so the long-term relationships are really important. Just never try to burn a bridge, I'll tell you that. Yeah, because you just never know, right? It's, look, at, you, look, look at you and me here. Yeah. That's, I mean, how many years ago did we meet? Yeah, a long, long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were both much younger men. Yes, we were. So eventually, uh, you end up moving here to Las Vegas. What what made you make the jump here to Vegas? Well, I actually moved here before I got the Aussie gig. So basically, before I got that job, I was doing a lot of work at home in LA of a house that I rented. Yeah, it was like I think about eighteen hundred square feet or something like that. So there's one room I could kind of set aside as my room. It was very small. Um, and I became a little bit of a fix it, mix it kind of guy for different people. So they just send me drives. I'd time the drums or tune the vocal, whatever they needed me to do, and send it back. Yeah. Uh, I had a couple bands that I got production gigs with that would show up, and I'd I'd make records with them. But they didn't care if I was living in L.A. or anywhere else. So yeah. basically, uh, once again, Kim, they wanted to have a real house that we bought. And I was doing okay financially. I mean, I wasn't making a lot of money, but enough to buy a house. Yeah. So uh, L.A. was just crazy expensive. At that time, it was like 800000 for like a starter home that yeah. didn't even give me like a place for a studio. Yeah. Uh, or in the bad part of town. Um, so we ended up going to, ve- to Vegas on a vacation, just a weekend thing, and said, you know what? It's not too bad here. Let's drive around. We kind of drove into the suburbs a little bit more. And the price of a house was half as much with a lot more square footage. And we eventually found a house where I had an independent room with its own air conditioning system and all that. So it wasn't going to be that much trouble for the rest of the house. And with yeah. the hot gear and all that, I could cool it down right. And, you know, if people are just sending me drives anyways, why can't we live here? Yeah. And the, the reality was we could. So I did. So I did. And we moved there and had lots of moments of panic. 
what did I do? Yeah. Who goes to Vegas, Vegas. To, to become, you know, an engineer producer? Uh, the answer was nobody uh, except me. Yeah. But it worked out again real well because um, because instead of being, because by moving to Vegas, I kind of became that Vegas guy. Yeah. Instead of staying in LA and just being another guy. Yeah. Because there's so many people there. It's hard to make an identity. And, and you know, I just had a much better life, life here. You know, less traffic, yeah. more freedom, less cost of living, which means that your quality of living goes up. Um, and then right after, like a few months after living here, I got the Aussie call and I never left my, I never gave away my LA cell, cell phone. So they assumed I lived in town. Okay. Yeah. Had they not assumed I live in town, I probably wouldn't have gotten that call. Yeah. But I would just drive back and forth every time they, they needed me for weeks. Yeah. Until finally one Friday night, Zach wanted to like record till 4 a.m. And I was supposed to drive home that night. And it's yeah. like a four hour drive. Uh, and I think I must have let it slip. Oh, it's going to be a long drive back to to Vegas. Vegas? You live in Vegas? I said, Yeah, I've lived there the whole time. Why? You should have told us. <laughs> so we wrapped it for the night. But by then, I I think by then I already knew I was in the club. Yeah. So I didn't have to prove that I was valuable. And at that time, I had proved I'm showing up on time. I'm always there, working harder than anybody else's. So it it kind of became not a problem. Yeah. And they didn't care where I lived at that point. But had they known I didn't live in town, I probably never would have gotten that call. Because you forward think problems. Even now with me, too, I forward, pro forward think problems. If there's a red flag, you know, people like myself tend to start moving away from it because you just don't need problems. Yeah. You know, it's funny how you now as a studio owner here and you've got a bunch of people working for you. And, you know, those are things that now you recognize that you wouldn't have dealt with. But... It, sometimes it makes you think that, well, am I missing out on, on somebody or missing out on something because now I'm thinking as a, you know, the studio owner and, and things that you got in for because of certain reason, now you, you have to be the guy that cuts things off and, and this sort of, you know, um, yeah. but then it makes you think, you know, well, that's the way I got in, but, but yeah. makes you think differently. Yeah, you know, you definitely, I definitely have a different perspective on everything yeah. because now I have a 13,000 square foot building with 18 air conditioners, even though like my daughter runs it all mm -hmm. and I don't have to do a lot. It's still a lot to think about. Oh yeah. Uh, and that also, you know, that combined with the different level that I'm producer at now, you know, with different projects and, and dealing with a different level of industry person that I do now. Now I realize why some people above me do the things that they do. Yeah. So I, I actually tend to be more, um, more forgiving and accepting of other people now because I remember as a young kid being angry about certain things because I couldn't understand why. But now I understand why. So I go, okay, I get it. So now when I run into a situation where I don't quite understand what somebody's all about, I just say there, there's probably things I don't know. I'm not him. I don't know what they have to think about, particularly, um, you know, people f further up, let's call it the musical industry food food chain. Yeah. Is that they all have their own problems, their own worries. If they don't call me back, it's I don't take it personally because there's lots of people I don't call back now because you just don't have time in your day yeah. to give everybody attention that, that needs it um, or that that, that wants, wants it or asks for it. Um, so, I, you know, but the people that continuously call, call me back or I continuously call me, I tend to take more seriously because obviously they want it more. Yeah. And I don't purposely do that. You know, I, I think I responded right away to your to your pod podcast re request, although 
Yeah, it might have been a couple of days later because it might have come in on a weekend or something like yeah. that. Yeah, no, you did. But um, uh, but let's say, but you were somebody I knew. I yeah. go, oh, yeah, yeah that's, that'd be cool. Yeah. Uh, but if you're somebody I didn't know, I might not have responded to, to it, I hate to say. Oh, yeah. That's, um, I, yeah, I totally understand. But in which yeah. case, it shouldn't, uh, you know, you, if you hit me up a second time, that same guy, I might have looked twice and then clicked on the link and said, oh, it's a cool podcast. Yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. You know, so it's not always personal. And so now I understand when people deal with me, you know, presidents of labels and big management companies and stuff, you know, if I want to work with one of their bands and they don't call me back, it's really nothing personal. It's just whatever ever happens that yeah. on that day it was a bad day. He had a fight with his wife. He, he got lost in his email chain that he had. I mean, who yeah. knows? So I tend to give more people a, a, a little bit more of a pass, you know, these days just because I have to deal with a different level of stress and relationships now. Yeah, too. exactly. Last time I, I checked out your studio, you were in a different location. Um, right. You were just, just kind of on the edge of the strip, basically, weren't you? Yeah. Um, and uh, what made you make that decision to go there? You just needed to find a... Uh, um, well, the reason why I built the studio there um, is because I had a good friend um, who owned the building, yeah, and they ran the Italian Italian restaurant there and stuff. And so he he just made me a great deal. Said, you know, you need to be out of your house, and why don't you come here, and then we can we can collaborate, and we can you know pool our gear, and you know, it's basically helped us both out to do it there. And then he gave me affordable rent, yeah, um, and uh, because he knew I was gonna come and spend, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars building a proper studio in, in his building, which now, since I left there, he, he actually runs that, that place now. So so it, it ended up being great for us both. But I just wanted basically a commercial place where it wasn't my home. Yeah. Uh, but that was still really great and that I could still do quality work at. And um, and that was kind of the best place. And it, it was a wonderful, vibey place for a long time. And, and uh, you know, I miss it in many ways now. You know, the the smallness of it in a sense and the yeah. um you know it was a very special place i did a lot of great albums there yeah i really uh you're gracious enough and a few years ago i remember i give you a call hey i'm in town so come see the studio and Corey was in town and uh checked it out it was yeah i really liked it in there it was it's very cozy and yeah. had a really cool vibe yeah yeah i miss it i mean it's cozy here too but when you're on yeah. a commercial place you have to treat it a little bit differently you know it's like i can have all my cool ambiance um vibey things out like you know some decorations like maybe some skulls a kiss poster you know different things that that i put up yeah um and then if carl santana's coming in the next day you got to take all the stuff down because that's not his vibe oh, yeah. you know so it's it's a little different level uh, that i miss the 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 proprietariness of having my own personal studio where I didn't have to satisfy anybody other than me. Yeah. Now, you know, the Backstreet Boys are coming in around some time. It's got to be appropriate for them. Uh, so, yeah, I, I really miss that that place. E- even though, I mean, obviously here the place is so much bigger and, and uh, you know, i got four big studios and and awesome gear and vintage gear, micro, my, microphone collection like I thought I'd never have. Yeah. Um, so those are all wonderful new things. It's just, you know, some old guy looking back on the old old times. Yeah. No, it's, <laughs> I mean, there's there's those places and times in your life that, you know, it's uh, you kind of miss. And always going forward is, is great, but there's sometimes you just, there's a certain place that you, you know, you always enjoy and yeah. um, like going to. So how did, how did this whole place here at the hideout come about? Uh, 
Right. So while uh, while we're working at my old studio and and Kane or Chloe, my daughter used to run that place too, but there's just so much, so little to actually do. Yeah. Um, and Kane had a room there too. So we, my son and I both had our own little rooms and you know, his room was quite a bit smaller than mine and he was rising in the ranks and he just needed more space in a control room. We wanted to have a dedicated drum drum room as well as we are now taking on both of us were doing different projects. So we had, we would have like two bands there at the same time yeah. and it just wasn't big enough. It was re- really just the only reason why we moved was just a matter of we needed space and we needed, um, you know, we just, we just needed more room as simple as that. And we were both still hoping to get bigger and better and we just didn't feel we could do it there without renting even more space and then I'm investing money into someone else's building. Yeah. And you never really get that money back when you're renting. Yeah. So, um, uh, so I went to plan B, which was, oh, excuse me, it's got a frog in my throat, uh, <clears throat> which was I bought a new property, I bought a house. Yeah. And it had an acre and a, acre and a half of land, so I was going to build in this backyard my dream studio, and it was still only going to be a small private studio for Kane, Kane and me. Yeah, but it would be a lot, you know, twice as big as what I had, and Kane would have a full size control room. I'd have a full size control room. We'd share a drum room in the in the middle, you know, playing room, and I have a couple of ISO booths. And I, I had actually I was quite a few thousand dollars into building it with architects and planning. I even had. This, had some people come out and do soil samples and they were drilling into my land and yeah. we we're literally come i ready ready to press the go go button on that and then uh this studio that i bought um sent me an email said we're ready to sell are you interested in and the reason why they sent that is because for, for the previous five years you know i remember telling kane one time when i rented this place that i'm gonna get this place for a dime on the dollar one day just wait mm-hmm. and it took me five years but Every year I would send these guys a note saying, can I either completely lease out the building or can I buy it? Even though I had no money. Yeah. <laughs> no money to do either either one. Uh, and and occasionally say, yeah, you can lease it out, but they give me such a high number that it didn't even make sense. So I yeah. said, well, that's too high, but keep me in mind. And, um, and you know, they kept saying no, but I'd see the ownership change from four co-owners to three co-owners to two uh-huh. co-owners. I knew I was getting closer. Yeah. And when one guy was left, uh, then eventually that guy wanted to kind of get out of it too. I mean, the gentleman who really owned it is quite wealthy. Mm-hmm. And so he was kind of retiring and his son was running this studio and, and he was, he wanted to take more over more of his other father's businesses, the ones that really made money, not yeah. the recording studio that didn't make, make any cash. So they just were just anxious to leave. And, and I don't think they needed to make a whole bunch of money from it. And I don't think they cared. It was for that, for that kind of level of person has that much money, like Cayman Islands money. They just were happy to basically get something decent for us, throw us, throw us the keys and leave. Yeah. And they didn't want to have a whole bunch of people coming in and doing studies. And, you know, it's it's a hassle to sell a place of this size because if you're not selling it to a studio guy, they're going to rip it apart, in which yeah. case it's a monumental task. And uh, But if you sell it to a studio guy, then he's got to come in and still put some time in and figure out what gear. They didn't have a gear list. They didn't, they didn't know a lot of stuff they owned. Yeah. They weren't technical. So... I just made it as easy as I could with them, and I sent over my assistant and said, go document every piece of gear in that whole building, and let's just find out what it's really worth. Yeah. And put together a bid, and I remember talking to Kemne and going, you know, we should try this. She says, we can't afford that. 
I go, yeah, I know we can't, but you know, let's just do it as an exercise, mm-hmm. as an exercise in um, maybe one day we will. Yeah. So let's put it together, and even if we fail, you know, we'll know what it costs, and we'll know different things like that, and we'll go through the process. And next time we'll be better. Let's just use it as kind of an experiment. And what's the harm in putting numbers down on a on a paper and figuring it out? Yeah. Um, and so she said, okay. And so I kind of put it all all together, and all of a sudden it looked like I could maybe afford it. Uh, but I still didn't have a bank. Yeah. I still, I still needed a bank to buy. It's not like I had the cash in the bank. I just had a down, down payment. Yeah. Uh, and a friend who had other down payment, payment money too. Um, uh, and so I just kind of said, okay, well, worst case, if the worst, worst case happens, this is what it's going to drag us down each month. Can we afford that kind of payment? And we figured out we could. Yeah. And again, Kane was, you know, getting bigger too, so he could start to afford to pay, pay more. And we put it down on paper. They said no immediately, but then a month later, they basically set, came back and said yes. So I think maybe a couple other offers had fallen through for them. Yeah. And they came back to me and said, yeah, well, how about this price? And I said, okay. And then I had to actually go find a bank. <laughs> so part of the process was done, and that and that was the fun part, Yeah, trying to buy gear in a studio. And now the more difficult process was to try to get the financing for it. And this, this is a funny story, too. I'll, I'll be as quick as I can. But I thought my best try at doing this, because banks don't understand studios, musicians. We've, we've had that battle all our lives. I'm, yeah. sure, I'm sure you have the same battle. Um, so I thought I need a mortgage broker, so I went to a guy that farmed my mortgage out to everybody across across the states here. Yeah. And and actually I got some people who said yes. So I got, you know, about three companies across the country who said yeah, they'd do it and gave me an interest rate and blah blah blah. And then at the very last second as I was getting ready to push the button on one one of those, this other bank calls and said, "Listen, we haven't been able to respond, but we, we want to look at this. Give us another day." So they gave us another day or we gave them another day. And as it turns out, it was a bank on the next block. No way. And so they said, we're sending a guy by now to drive drive by. And they drove by the building and to them, you know, it worked out really well because then it was a legitimate real place that they could see yeah. and they could I could take him inside of it and they could see, okay, this is like the real thing. This isn't just a building. This yeah. is like a, they spent millions of dollars building this place, even though I didn't have to pay for that millions of yeah. dollars of the building. But, um, so they gave me and a much better interest rate than I could get with the other guys. So it worked out perfectly. So my banker is just down the road and I go in there and my daughter goes in there and they come here to check out this the studio every now and then and it worked out well. That's so, awesome. So that's just another example of, you know, life life is weird. It could have been some company in New York that didn't care, yeah. but these guys are just a local bank that care. So Yeah. That's incredible. Bank of the West. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just say that. Yeah. Why not? So was it a big... Uh, big move coming in here or is it was it kind of did it feel overwhelming or or uh which is just you settled in pretty easy it didn't feel overwhelming because we were so ready for it yeah everybody including um you know Kemney got to refinish everything because it looked quite a bit different than what we wanted to look like so yeah. so my wife Kemney was able to make it look really good chloe was ready for real challenge instead of at my old place it was she could pretty much phone it in every every day there's yeah. nothing to do now she's had her hands full and she really blossomed doing that, so that that's been really cool. But it was overwhelming a little bit, N- not in the thought process because it was perfect. I was already working. We were Kay and I were working the first day we were in here doing projects. Yeah. I mean, it was all ready to go. Yeah. Plus, we brought even more gear. Although it took us some time to get it into better shape than what it what it was, and we're still doing that now. Yeah. Um, 
But, uh, you know, the still the financial stress was still a little bit overwhelming in a sense because uh, I had a separate loan for the equipment inside of here because I was going to sell a lot of it because they had lots of vintage mics and lots of things I didn't necessarily need to make records. Yeah. So part of me being able to afford it was actually selling a bunch of the equipment to pay for the rest of the equipment. Yeah. And I didn't necessarily um, need like a whole bunch of the gear. It's just they, they had too much. Yeah. But once I got in here and you have access to those vintage mics yeah. and um, you have access to such great gear, you kind of don't want to give it up. And then I realized that a lot of customers and clients expect some of that stuff too. And even if the console isn't that useful to me, it's a great picture taking opportunity with everybody. And some yeah. people just rent it for videos, shoots and that oh, yeah. sort of thing. So, so, the, so the business plan changed a little bit. Also, right, you know, I'll be very quick on this too because I want to bore, bore listeners. But a month after coming in here, we had a guy come in here and offer us money to buy it. And Chloe, you know, she fields all the calls, of course. And so she says, no, we just bought it. He says, no, no, we really want to buy it. No, we just bought it. And then finally she came in to me and says, is there a price you'd take? And I, you know, took what I paid for the studio and times it by four Mm -hmm. and said, yeah, if he can pay me this much money, then I'll, then I'll sell it. Thinking I can just go buy another property. Well, he said he wanted to come see it. And so he brought a team of guys. And so they were going to buy it. And it was like, wow, I just made that much money from in one month of doing nothing. Yeah. Uh, but it was going to be a process. You mm-hmm. know, he had a board that had to prove it and blah, blah, blah. It was like a business process. But but they are very serious. And, um, and so long story short, I actually put a month into looking for another building again to build. Uh-huh. Because now with all the profits, now I could build the studio exactly the way I wanted yeah. to, anywhere I wanted. So that was very exciting. So I probably put a full-time month into getting a new plan to make sure I had somewhere to go. Yeah. And then long story short, six months later, it all fell through and they didn't end up buying it. But yeah. the reason I tell that story is because that was six months of not following my own business plan here. Yeah. Then all of a sudden I'm behind the eight ball because I've let five months go by where I wasn't thinking I was staying, yeah. where I thought I was leaving and I thought that the money was going to be awesome and it would be no problem. Then all of a sudden now I had other loans being due and stuff like that. So that was a little bit harrowing. And just because I was working full time on, on records. So a lot of times I'd have to get here like at 7am or like 8am to do two hours of just either administrative work or functional studio work before yeah. I could start with my band at 10. And then I work with my band from 10 until eight at night and then do another hour at the end of that or something in order to just keep the wheels turning here and just keep on improving it here. So it ended up being about six months of really hard work and a little bit of financial stress, but luckily I had a couple of hits and those royalties came in and everything was great. Awesome. (laughs) Well, you know, it's, it's really neat to, you know, see where you've come from and where you are now. You mean you walk through the studio and it's super impressive and, and your body of work is super impressive. And, and chatting with you, uh, you can really tell that, you know, you're still who you were back in the Moose Jaw days. You know, it's... it's um, I'm, I'm just as much of an idiot now as I was then, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really great. I mean, I, I think that a lot of people can get to this position and just be a different person. And I think what makes... Uh, someone who really successful is, you know, you stay rooted to who you are. And, and that's part of, you know, being a good producer and being a good engineer is just, you know, staying true to who you are and what you believe in and, and, you know, delivering uh, a good product. And, um, you obviously are doing it, doing it right. Well, I, th- I think, I think, 
I think there's so many things that keep me um, on the same path, and obviously the biggest one is family. I mean, I got the same family I had when I was broke. Yeah. So I mean, none of that's changed. Um, and you know, I'm the kind of guy that looks at, okay, well, I've had success doing this this way. Why do I want to all of a sudden be a different person now? I mean, obviously yeah. it was working, so I don't want to mess it up. I mean, to be honest with you, I don't. You know, I think maybe a lot of people, if you're on your own. Like, let's just say, take an athlete, you're on your own, you're broke, you come from a poor family, maybe, and all of a sudden you make all that money, and all of a sudden you got those other people that you've never known before, and they're, you know, it's hard to know who to trust and hard to sort of keep on gauging what you should be doing. Yeah. But I don't really have those problems because everybody is growing with me, and yeah. everybody's there to keep me in check, you know? My wife will always keep me in check, I'll tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I count on Chloe to keep me in check, too. I mean, yeah. it's it's de- definitely your ego grows as you do more and more things, and so it's easier to just say, do it because I said, or I'm the boss, and that's that. But, yeah. you know, I think when you have your daughter working for you, you who's kind of in charge, you can she can she can challenge me, or at least tell me in a nice way when I'm being an ass. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people really get, get that in that sense. Um, that's important. I mean, yeah. and she, you know, she's obviously not going to be afraid to say it. And, and yeah. uh, um, I think everybody needs yeah. someone to put them in check every once in a while. That's that's what families are for. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly right. So, I mean, some sometimes it's it's difficult because uh, it's difficult in a in a trivial way because I just can't say just do it because yeah. you know anybody who has kids know your kids can argue with you infinity, uh, but. You know, now that they're adults, both her and Kane make valid points sometimes, and I tend to listen to them a little more yeah. um, than somebody new off the street. I don't know what their background is. I don't know what they know, what they don't know. I know yeah. what my kids know, and they've seen successes and failures of ours, and, and they're smarter for it. And so I, I think that that kind of family environment has really helped it, you know, really helped me stay the same rather than if I was just, you know, a 30-year-old in Vegas with money and status I mean, it would be, there could be a lot of things that go wrong with that picture. Yeah. Uh, but not a lot of things that go wrong in mine. So being, here's a question I wanted to ask you. Being in Vegas, obviously people come to work with you from all over the place. Um, being in Vegas just happens to you being in Vegas. But do you get work uh, because there's so much entertainment here? Is it, does any of that spill off over here? Or is it, is it strictly just, you know, people coming to work with you? Well, so there's basically two businesses going on here. One is Kane and my production business yeah. of artists that we we produce. And honestly, they don't care if we lived in Vegas or yeah. Minot. I don't know why I chose Minot, but I just chose That's it. That's pretty random. <laughs> <laughs> Moose shot. Yeah. Okay, it's probably better. Uh, it, it Although it matters a little bit for flights and stuff, so I shouldn't say it doesn't matter, but Vegas is a good international city, so it doesn't matter to, move, to, to be here. That In fact, nobody doesn't like nobody doesn't like writing off a business trip to Vegas. Vegas yeah. I can tell you that. No A&R person's ever complained about it. No band's ever complained. Yeah. They all find something to do here. So there's that business, and then there's the studio business of just selling studio time, because with four rooms, only two are ever taken up by Kane on any given day. Yeah. So there's two other rooms. So that pays a lot of our bills. So for Kane and I, for our production uh, work, it, it, it doesn't, we don't get any work locally. I, I say we don't get any work locally, but that's not true because Five Finger technically is a local band. Yeah. Uh, and lots of other bands have moved here to live now too. So um, 
so we do we work with local people but yeah. the local scene doesn't really cross our paths really that yeah. much unless we're just looking for new talent or something like that which there's some great new talent here we've been working with but it's not like we depend on that at all it no. wouldn't it wouldn't matter to us uh, but for the studio, obviously, being an entertainment city is fantastic because, yeah, we get all those people with with um, with residencies. They still like to record. So yeah. we do get the Backstreet Boys coming here. We do get Carl Santana coming here. Uh, uh, lots of people pass through town here, you know, while doing award shows and, you know, whatnot that get filmed here. So we've yeah. had Miley Cyrus here as she's moving through through the city needs somewhere to record. You know, yeah. Martina McBride came here and recorded like an interview one one time because she was happened to be in town and yeah. so just need a couple hours of studio time so yeah being that it's vegas it really has been great because it's hard to have a studio of this size in a city of this size yeah when the entertainment isn't like it is in la or nashville or new york yeah but um but yeah all those strip acts and all those kind of um you know let's call resident entertainers they eventually there's a couple places in town here that are great studios and they go to one or the other so yeah. we're always in that in that fold and and um and actually you know that that was kind of the problem they had before with the previous ownership is they kind of weren't really connected to the music industry in any way like like me yeah so when warner chapel books a songwriting uh session here well i i know the president's of Warner Chapel, so it's like, oh, you own this place, yeah, okay, well, I'll send more work. So then it becomes that sort of sort of thing. So, yeah. you know, the tie-ins to the industry that I have have helped it succeed. Although it still is in a peripheral market, I'm not in LA. Yeah. But say I have a publishing company like Warner Chapel has a writing camp here every every year, and they book like ten days in two studios, kind of thing, and it really helps our over overhead. Yeah. So that's not. Well, that in part is because it's Vegas. Because again, nobody doesn't mind coming here. I keep no. saying that in the, with a the double negative, but everybody likes coming here. Yeah. Um, if it's just because you got twenty writers in town, they need something to do when they're not here, and they got something to go to. They can go see a show. They can go gamble. They can go, you know, do whatever people do here. Yeah. So, uh, so it's worked out really well, and definitely, I think the residencies on the strips are are. Uh, are getting bigger now too. Yeah, there's more and more, and even like smaller people coming here and just having a smaller room. It doesn't all have to be the share show and Celine and, and yeah. that sort of thing. So all those people need to record somewhere too. And 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 honestly, those people are moving here to live now too because it's a great place to live. Um, so uh, I don't have to mention them all by name, but but many people actually have a place here, yeah. which is awesome for us because. Sometimes they want a home studio. Sometimes they don't, and and some sometimes they just want to be able to come here real quick and be comfortable and know know people and yeah. and that's kind of and our family environment gives them that that friendly feeling without being like just a corporate studio. I mean, they talk to somebody on any given day who's a churco. Yeah. I mean, there'll always be somebody here, so it's it's easy to put out fires or to solve any problems or or anything like that. Well, you certainly do get that vibe here. You know, I've been I've toured and been in a lot of big studios and. And this felt very comfortable. Like it, it's a big place, and you've got lots of studios here. But it had a very um, comfortable vibe. Um, I think you were just responding to the hockey nets out front. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean people say that, which is surprising to me, because this is really the only the only way I've ever known it. Yeah. But I remember it have worked in other studios. Even this one here. I mean, the funny story about this studio is that. When I did the first Five Finger record, I did that in my house, and 
they wanted to do the making of and reverse the making of. So we actually rented this studio for a half day to come here and take pictures. Oh, no way. And in fact, sitting right where you're sitting now, I sat there and they hired a guy to come take pictures of us like we were working here. And instead we were working in my kitchen. So uh, it was cool to come full circle and now buy the place. I used to pretend that I was actually working it. Yeah. (laughs) But but, in that family environment, I mean, you just don't get around. I mean, all our people are, we're all connected to, it's not unlike being a band in the old days. Um, You know, like for Thanksgiving this year, we had four people from the studio over to the the house, which usually people spend time with their families, but these two guys, well, three of them were from out of town. So it's like, you don't have your families? Well, come come over to our house. Now that that doesn't mean that I expect them to do their job any less good than what they do. But that kind of, I think, attitude is just the way that we've always been. My house is always kind of the drop-in center for different, you know, people. and so even though my house necessarily isn't that now, but the, and the studio isn't even that, but it is really about the relationships. We just like to keep them for long term. Yeah. You know, like I was telling you, I introduced to our chief engineer. Uh, he was here five years before me, and now he's been here for three years with, with me. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a part of the fabric here. And um, the fir- first day that we moved here from my old studio, uh, this guy had been, you know, here's another good example. My assistant, his name is Tristan Harden. He he was hitting us up at our old studio to, to try to get work, yeah. for like two or three years. And I just a I didn't have any work. I did, I had a guy. I didn't need him. But when we moved here, I needed some help moving some stuff. Oh yeah. And told Chloe to call him, and he canceled uh, a trip to I don't know if it Disneyland or Slipknot, the Knot Fest or something like that. Yeah. Uh, in order to help me move some equipment, and uh, and he's been here ever since. Wow. Started as an untamed, unpaid intern, and now he's like, you know, he can work as many hours in a week week as he wants. Yeah. So that is a, that gives me comfort having relationships like that with people that you know I can depend on and I get to know. And his girlfriend works here, and yeah. you know, I guess it does end up representing family. I still see more corporateness here than I'd like. Yeah. But I guess if you're used to really real corporate studios, it is probably a lot a lot different. Yeah. You know, than someone being able to just poke their head into Chloe's office and say, hey, there's no toilet paper in the bathroom. Yeah. You know, that gets solved fairly fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, a couple quick questions and I'll let you uh, obviously uh, get back to work. Um, if you had to, I want to go a little geeky for a second. Uh, what's your favorite piece of equipment in the studio? If you had to pick one thing as your, if you had to leave this place and I had to only take one thing with you, what would you take? I would say my Danette snare drum. There you go. That we talked about earlier. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a great sounding drum kit and and uh, it thrills me that a friend of mine actually built it. So, yeah. I mean, that's even, just, that's just bonus. But even if it wasn't him, uh, you know, I'm glad it found its way here. So that's from an acoustical point of view. Yeah. Uh, I would say the UTA Unfair Child is my next one, yeah. which has, I, that's my vocal chain now. So um, even though I had an actual Fairchild here when I bought the place, that is one of the premium pieces of gear I ended up selling for probably almost as much as my first house cost. <laughs> but that let me buy a bunch of other great gear. And the Unfair yeah. Child is one that, that that's just ended up living up to, to its hype. And it's it's also very expensive, but it's 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 been pretty 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 useful to me. I I would say. Yeah. 
All right, second question, hockey. Vegas Golden Knights. Yes, you're a big fan. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I was I played hockey as a kid, of course, like most most Canadians do. But I mean, I, I quit probably around 13 or 14, I think. Yeah. You know, and I was never awesomely good or anything like that, so it wasn't a hard choice. Uh, but it's you know, and then it kind of left my life for a long time. I kind of poke my head in and out, you know, as as the years went on. You know, our band used to play in Calgary a lot, and so back when the Flames were doing really well, so Theron Fleury and Doug Gilmore used to come down to the bar and get up on stage and play. So That's I mean, cool. again, I was a huge fan at that time because they yeah. were making a playoff run and all that, and then with Switzerland. And then, you know, Vancouver wasn't as big of a deal there. Uh, but, yeah, since the, the city has got the Knights here, life has gotten a lot better for, for us. Yeah. And you know, I hate to say it. I mean, it's got better for me, but I can even see it, you know, yeah. just in people. I mean, you got two million almost people from different parts of the country have some things in common, don't have other things in common, but now we do. We got one thing in common. Yeah. <laughs> other than gambling. But, but but gambling isn't even even a thing that people have in common because most people who live here don't gamble. Yeah, it's transient. Uh, but hockey is definitely one thing for a city in the desert that knew nothing about it. I mean, it's amazing. And I'll be... It's it's a different viewing experience when you go see a hockey game here than in in a in, a, in an old school hockey town, because you'll be sitting there and there'll be like a delayed penalty and your goalie will start skating off and you hear four questions behind you. Why is the goalie going off? Why is the goalie going off? <laughs> you know they don't understand all the rules yet and they yeah. don't get it all. But luckily, throughout their pockets throughout the stadium where people are telling everybody, it's kind of like you're explaining hockey for the first time. Yeah. So it's been very exciting and the fact the team did so well. That first year, I mean, how long did Toronto wait? I mean, even last year they did so great. Yeah. But the Knights scored more points in their first year of existence than at that time than Toronto had ever gotten in a year. I mean, that just doesn't happen. No. So. Yeah, just. And my friends are quick to remind me this year that this should have been our last year. And, you know, last year should have been this year. Yeah. Maybe. But this year's not over yet. That's all I can say. No. Toronto's actually doing pretty good this year. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'd love Toronto to, yeah. to to make a deep run, or, or the Jets, too. I yeah. mean, look, before I had the Vegas Knights, it didn't matter what Canadian team it was, because I didn't really have a team. Yeah. I loved them all. So it's like whatever Canadian team makes it to the playoffs, you just have to cheer cheer for. Yeah. But now that uh, now that there's Knights, unfortunately, there's one American team I will, I will take over top of a Canadian team. Sorry. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Well, thank you uh, for spending uh, all this time, and uh, it's been... A really great conversation. Cool. Um, Thank you for coming. I want to, at a later date, maybe sometime when I'm back in the future, do a podcast just talking about gear. Yeah, I'm sure we yeah. could probably uh, spend hours and hours on that. Yeah. Um, there's no shortage of talk here, yeah. Yeah, but I uh, appreciate it, and good luck with uh, the studio here and everything, and uh, it was a real pleasure for you to take your time and, and do this. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. All right, let's wrap it up. Mm-hmm.